RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 3, Episode 24, The Icarus Factor Distribution List, November 21st, 1988. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Welcome back, Star Trek fans. And I, of course, especially mean all you background fans, you Trek historians. Yes, you canonistas. I say that in the loving way. And, of course, all of our Trekophiles spelled with an F. Um, yes, we had such a good time visiting with uh, our recent guest that I had to have him come back. We're going to dive into that interesting interesting time of change, otherwise known as The Next Generation Season 2. And on top of that, we may have our most unique, quote-unquote, uh, air quote, Star Trek, Trek file yet. <laughs> a single sheet of paper with a distribution list on it, what we used to call Studio Bucks for a half a sheet. Anyway, um, this will be an interesting reading. Find it at our Trek page at Facebook slash The Trek Files. Read along with us <laughs> for a very brief reading this week, but come back because our guest um, is going to shed a lot of interesting light on this time in Star Trek history. Take a listen. Second Draft Teleplay. Distribution. Gene Roddenberry. Morris Hurley. Rick Berman. Bert Armas. Mike Gray. John Mason. Scott Rubenstein. Leonard Malabnow. Tracy Torme. David Livingston, Dirk Van Bunt, Liz Z, Joan Pierce, David Page, Miranda Von Dornham. Hey, Trekophiles. I told you it would be a different kind of week, dock-wise. No, this is uh, the distribution list, a typical one, for at mid-season of season two. Of course, the year kept evolving. A typical season would be 26 episodes, and writers, uh, especially out of the gate, would be tried out typically on a 13-week season. The second season of Next Gen was shortened by the strike down to just 20 episodes, and our guest today, as I believe, was signed to a 10-week deal then. So, Bob McCullough, welcome back. Is that all it was, was 10 weeks? I thought you told me it was a 10-week deal, yeah. It, it, it certainly felt longer. It felt like about <laughs> 150 weeks, frankly. Okay. Well, that's exactly what we want to get into because, as I said last time you were on the show, uh, the, those tortuous early seasons of Next Gen were a little wobbly on screen uh, for a reason. The, the writing staff wasn't the most settled. And it, it, it thanks to Chaos on the Bridge, the documentary by William Shatner, we see a lot of the reason for that. But – it, 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 it hits the first season more than the second, so I'm glad you're here to talk about those days. I have not seen Shatner's documentary, but I think the title alone captures it very uh-huh. well. <laughs> it was chaotic. Um, having been on several other series in the past, I was a little nonplussed to discover that everybody was looking over their shoulders at all time. I mean, to walk in and the supervising producer, Bert Armas, is walking out almost as I'm walking in was a little disconcerting. Yeah. I was I was assured by Maurice Hurley that everything was going to be fine. Now, that was Maurice's nature. To him, everything was I don't want to say off the cuff, but he was a very casual guy 
and a very quick mind. A little frustrating for me as a writer. I'm a fairly structured writer. I like to have an outline when I sit down to do a script. I want to know the beginning, middle, and end at all times. I want to know the the scene breaks, the act breaks, mm-hmm. all that. And then when I sit down to write, I can write very, very quickly. I mean, I could pump out a, a script in a day and a half as long as I have a solid outline. Maurice Hurley never saw an outline in his life. <laughs> and his way of writing, which frustrated me to no end, even though I love the guy, he was great. He would always write the last scene first. And he said, hmm. we're going to back into this, Bob. I said, what are you talking about? Back into it? What happens before this? I don't know yet. Let's figure that out. And that's, <laughs> our writing sessions were pretty chaotic, like the the staffing situation itself. Now, part of the frustration for me as well was that I was fairly well insulated from everybody else on the cast and crew unless I was called to the set or called to a table read, as I discussed in our earlier conversation. But I was in a room by myself writing. Down the hall was a young man who was, I think, the nephew of Mel Torme, Mm -hmm. Tracy Torme. Uh, And he was like 21 or 22 years old, Um, but had done he had written something that Gene Roddenberry loved and he was on the staff. So he and I would see each other and I'd say, hey, what's happening? I'm working. He was very serious and obviously uh, driven to some degree. I'm not sure what his personal experience was, but I don't think he was a very happy camper the entire time I was there. Yeah, I think that first, maybe this was a, a disease that was catching, Bob. It seems like a lot of people came in great guns, wrote something great out of the box that Gene or someone else liked. It really did well. And then by the end of their tenure, not so happy. Now, I don't want to point fingers or cast blame, but at that time, uh, there was a young man by the name of Rick Berman who made it very clear that he was running the show. Now, Rick Berman never took me to lunch uh, on Sunset Boulevard. and <laughs> As uh, Gene did, as you told us last visit. As Gene <laughs> did, right. And um, he basically assumed control of all the material. He and Maurice Hurley butted heads constantly. And I soon came to learn that Gene didn't even see the scripts until they were actually shooting. So that was, I think, a real problem. Now, whether or not Gene was, any sh- was in any shape to, to have any input, I really couldn't say. I know that he was not feeling well. I know that most afternoons he was absent. Um, he was drinking a little bit, as I witnessed at lunch that day. Mm-hmm. But I, I never saw him staggering around drunk in the office or anything. But I know he wasn't he wasn't feeling his best. That's for sure. Uh, But he was to me, he was always kind of congenial and, uh, you know, very much a a grandfatherly figure. Uh, But in terms of I think part of the source of the problems was Rick Berman was a very ambitious guy and made it very clear to everybody that. He was taking care of Gene. If you had to say anything to Gene, you said it to Rick, and he would clear it. And he was pretty much, you know, the emperor may have had no clothes, but the only one who had the emperor's ear was Rick. And I'm sure he was Mm -hmm. very good at the studio politics, having come from the studio side of things. And listen, you know, my hat's off to the guy. He made a career out out of that kind of approach to things. Yeah, so, I, so when I came in, interestingly enough, um, a college roommate of mine had written an episode that everybody talked about forever. 
And I was unaware of that. This is long before I ever got in the business. I, I think he wrote the script when he was in his like 21 or 22 years old while he was still in school. No. Are you going to say and, what I think you're going to say? Well, and when David <laughs> Gerald walked into the office, it was kind of old home week. We had been fraternity brothers at USC. Oh, my gosh. And he said, how are you doing? And he's very energetic, very upbeat guy, a little manic maybe. <laughs> and I said, well, as, this is interesting. I'm learning a lot. He said, what are you doing Saturday? I said, I don't know. I'm probably going to go home and try to figure out what to write next. He said, come with me to San Diego. And we hopped in his car. He had a Corvette, I recall. And we drove to San Diego to my very first Star Trek convention. <laughs> now, I had I, I had seen some things in the past. I mean, I'd gone to concerts. I'd been backstage with Van Halen, all that good stuff. I had never seen anything like a Star Trek convention. And it, it was then that I realized what a phenomenon this entire thing was for the culture, not just for people watching TV, but for people who actually there was something deeper than just a TV show. There was a philosophy behind this, and I kept looking for that philosophy. Nobody could ever articulate it for me, and Maurice Hurley certainly couldn't because he said, <laughs> who cares about the philosophy? We're starting the script. I mean, he was very energetic, you know. Yeah, Maury very famously once called the whole Roddenberry vision uh, a wacky doodle thing, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Maury had come from an advertising background, I believe. So to him, everything was the pitch. The execution mm -hmm. didn't really matter. It was just, how are we going to sell this? That well, sort of thing. And apparently how it lands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he yeah. Wrote, I just want to see his tombstone say, Maury Hurley, he wrote great tag scenes. Exactly. <laughs> well, he always wrote, what you I, said. I, as I said, he always wrote the back. <laughs> That's the last what I mean. Years. Yeah, it was crazy. That's crazy. It was crazy. Anyway, David Gerald kind of educated me very quickly. He said, you don't understand. Trouble with Tribbles has followed him ever since. And uh, I did have occasion to actually go see that episode and it was quite fun but i to me it was also very uh, uh anathema to the technological perspective of the whole show you know it was about little it was about guinea pigs of all things you know mm -hmm. um so i i, I found I, I really loved that script but uh well when was I, the what year did he take you to this san diego convention when i got that job oh okay so it was right at, okay yeah, as soon as I got it, he recognized my. He, I guess, he was privy to things. Uh, I know he and oh, DC yes. Montana were very close, and uh, she had come in the office, and I met her, and she was lovely and nice, and seemed very normal to have written all these shows. <laughs> um, but you so had I, you had no clue about what fandom and the phenomenon, the cultural phenomenon no that Star Trek was. Yeah, none, none. I thought it was going to be a convention of people. I, I didn't know what to expect, frankly. But I didn't expect people in costume, that's for sure. And everybody was wearing something odd. I'll put it that way. <laughs> more more Klingons than I ever want to be with ever again. <laughs> well, hey, you gave them pain sticks. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm again. Where's my check? Did uh, you? Hey, did we talk about that? Where did pain sticks come from? Did, well, you know. It came from – I'm a big fan of Western movies and there's a movie called The Professionals and some others. Uh, and it's an Apache rite of passage, the Apache Indian tribe. Mm -hmm. To to become a warrior, you have to go through this tunnel of pain kind of a thing where they just beat you to death with you know branches and things like that. And it's also a very – it's a very tribal thing in Africa 
for young men to become a warrior. Mm-hmm. They're subjected to abuse by the elder warriors. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much like fraternity hazing, I guess. <laughs> and, and and once they've been through that, they're they're brought into the ranks. And certainly, you know, Worf needed a story. They, I hadn't seen much about him or his character, what really motivated him and from a spiritual standpoint. So I was trying to convey some of that, the fact that he is strong yet vulnerable and willing to sacrifice himself for the greater good. I thought that was really part of his nature that wasn't really explored all that much. Yeah. Well, again, I I really have to think as we've talked here these these last couple of visits that um, you would have fit in much better in later eras of the next generation because it became all about family and, and filling mm. in that blank slate. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know that's interesting hindsight. I our, our topic this week was everybody there around the world, and thank you for that. That was a great story. Um, I'm just curious because you came in at mid season. Maury Hurley himself had just risen to the pack at the end of a crazy first season right. and started off, and they survived the writer's strike. They come back, um, and he starts off straight. How was, how was Maury by midseason? Because he, he left at the end of the year, and he was fairly uh, disillusioned or burned well, out. He, was, he, was, he, he and Rick Berman did not get along, I'll put it bluntly. I mean, I, I at least was trying to be politic a little bit. I mean, I wasn't getting into Rick's face, although he was incredibly rude to most everybody in his purview. But he and Maury were oil and water. It was not funny. Hmm. It was tough to be around. In this that- window. And again, you came in mid-season. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And Maury was really stepping into Bert Armas' shoes. And, you know, Rick was pretty well, you know, asserting control over material. And Maury said, what, the, what am I here for if you're going to tell me what to write? Uh, which I think was not inappropriate, frankly. Um, so it was it was contentious, put it that way. There was, it was a lot t- of fluff, and a lot of this was the vacuum that Gene's health declining, exactly. and exactly what his role would be. Exactly. And, yeah. When the cat, when the captain of the ship doesn't take the helm, God knows who does, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it was very difficult and troubling, and I think this. I, I really fault the studio for letting that happen because uh, they had to be aware of what Gene was up to at that point. And again, I don't think it was anything uh, volitional on the part of Gene. I don't think he was feeling good, you know? Right. I don't know, I don't know how much, really what his health issues were or or how much longer he lived, but he wasn't well, a well man. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was, he was using a cane at that time. Right. He Well, Bob Justman talked about when they actually got ramped up in 86, like the year before they did the pilot and premiered, he was worried about Gene's health, and Gene got in a little bit better shape. But he he did pass away uh, in October of 1991, so early Next Generation's fifth season, and this is yeah. second. And people, and he'd been having many strokes for the last few months before that. But I think more and more people are looking back at second season, third season, because he was getting moodier. And well, a little more emotional, that, irrational, and thinking that maybe there were more neurological problems happening sooner than people. Well, if you drink enough alcohol, you're going to have neurological problems, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and yeah. he was he was drinking every day at lunch. Uh, so, and I I think he he looked at Rick as maybe somebody who could help him through all this. When in fact, I think Rick became his Iago, you know, uh, kind of undermining him to a great degree. And shield and shielding him from things and and making sure he wasn't involved in the decision making process. So I, I just found Rick un, insufferable, frankly. 
Well, and Maury's uh, role in the triad there was... Well, he, was, he wasn't allowed to do what he was hired to do. And he was very frustrated and very vocal. And, you know, he was a tall guy and he wasn't used to taking crap from people. And uh, just an outspoken personality, kind of a hand-waving personality, you know. Uh, as I said, hyper-energetic. And Berman would come in with his kind of, uh, you know, prep school conservative approach, very quiet and very forceful. And then he would go behind your back and tell somebody else what a horrible job you were doing. Hmm. Don't listen. Don't listen to that guy. That kind of thing. So he was incredibly Machiavellian um, and just tedious for somebody like me. I have no patience for that stuff. And again, my my innate irreverence didn't work well with with Rick. So uh, when I when I actually when I when I, my contract was not renewed, it was with a huge sigh of relief. You know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't something I was unhappy to leave. And uh, I think my wife would attest to that. I would come home from Paramount on a nightly basis, scratching my head, say, what are these people doing? They've got this great franchise and it's just being trashed by this guy who, A, doesn't know much about real production and knows nothing about story, yet he's assuming control of everything. So it was it was that kind of thing. It yeah. was just it was tedious for me. And um, I was happy to be gone, you know, and to show you how how happy I was. I've never seen a single episode. Of your run? I haven't seen a single episode of any run. You haven't seen your two your two credits? Well, oh, I saw, oh, I saw them, you know, at the, when I was okay. there at the studio. Okay. I saw them rough cut and final cut and all that stuff. But, okay. but I don't – I didn't turn the TV on to watch the show ever. But again <laughs> – I'm, I may be unique in this in this way. I'm not the kind of person who ever looks back on what I've done. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking. I'm working on something now. I'm always working on something in the future. Uh, people ask me about many shows I've worked on, and I barely remember them. You know, <laughs> and you had <laughs> Just, a long list, right? 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 Yeah. I mean, if you <laughs> ask me about, gosh, I worked on a show called O'Hara. People have asked me about what was it like to work with Pat Morita. I barely remember because I'm working on future projects. You know, right. I don't, I don't sit around and look at my, uh, my the awards on the wall, and that kind of thing. Well, Just, then I apologize for asking you about this crazy thing <laughs> from so far back in the past. No, but, no, no. I just, I, yeah. I wish I could, I wish I could be more resourceful for you. But yeah. until today, I haven't thought about this stuff in 20 years. You know. Well, just just uh, just to wrap up here, back to our original quote unquote document. Sure. Uh, I think some of these names you were saying: Mike Gray and John Mason, who were a team; Scott Rubenstein, Leonard Mladenov. They had all left or were on their way out the door as you came in. They were right. They weren't. So they didn't do the last half of the season. Tracy Torme, we talked right. about. Remember uh, him very well. Yeah, Melinda Snodgrass. Uh, uh, was Melinda, there. I remember very well because there were there were so few women writers. I think she and DC Fontana were the only women I ever saw in the building. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it wasn't the era of of women writing television, frankly. Well, she was about the, one of the few. Almost all the writing staff turned over, with only a couple of exceptions. By the time the third, the crazy third season wound up getting settled, uh, mm-hmm. was, you know, kind of wrangled into position finally. Right, uh, Michael Pillar. Well, do you remember just out the door here? You had your two credits, and then basically were what put out to pasture until the end of the year. Well, I think I was doing some rewrites, and you know, Uncredited. pretty much sitting, pretty much sitting around with Morris Maurice complaining about things. You know, um, being frustrated 
that every every story idea we came up with, Rick Berman would shoot down for one reason. Or it's not the way we do things. It's not it's not what Gene would want. That sort of thing. Well, he, Gene hadn't even seen the story. You know, one page little story treatment. Here's what we want to do. Here's an idea for a show. Oh, Gene won't like that. Therefore, he's not going to see it. Uh, th- those kinds of things are, are pretty offensive to people who are trying to get a show done, frankly. Um, and it was it was transparent to me what Rick was all about. So I'm not a contentious, competitive person at all. Uh, I just want to go do the work and then go home. Yeah. Well, speaking, so, speak, I was going to so, say, speaking of going home, let me just close with the, sure. the whole Shades of Grey which is the infamous clip show that ends this season. I've had some people tell me that, Maury, it's, it's a clip show because nobody really – like people just wanted to get something done and get out, get out of there that year. That's absolutely, you, that's absolutely true. Could you absolutely. tell me what the end of the year was like in that episode? Because it is kind of an infamous, like Star Trek's only clip show, and it's – you know. Well, it's because they ran out of material because we couldn't get anything approved. I mean when you can't get a script approved, you know, we're, we're going to pay you for writing this. Then you don't write it, and it was a question of we need to put something on the air. What have we got? And I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe it was all Maurice's idea. Morris Hurley said, "Why don't we just do this? Slap it all together," which is it's it's a kind of an old trick, frankly. Sure. When a show is either being canceled, or they completely run out of money, or the the star of the show refuses to show up for whatever reason, he's in rehab or something, uh, that producers will sit back and say, well, let's take our best scenes from the best episodes and put them all into one. And that's exactly what happened there. There was no writing involved. It was all it was editorial process, you know. Right. I think David. I think David Livingston at that point was involved. Well, there is a, there is some scenes with Pulaski and Riker and Troy where he he's infected and they're scanning him and all that. There's some connective narrative, but uh, uh-huh. yeah, it was it's mainly a case of um, of <laughs> getting the year over with as soon as possible. By then, we were having such trouble getting stories approved, and you have to realize in a television production machine the scripts have to be be, you have to start writing the script six weeks before it ever hopes to make it to the stage well if you don't approve of story material well prior to that you're not going to have a script so we came down to the point where they were just out of material and they had to shoot and i believe it was maurice hurley's idea why don't we just pull together a clip show which is a very common tactic when a series has been canceled or for one reason or another the the star of the show can't show up for work. Um, they they'll go find the best episode, best clips from the best episodes, mm-hmm. put them together in some kind of a a strung together fashion, um, and it, then it becomes an editorial process. I believe at the time, Maurice and David Livingston got together on that and basically saved everybody's bacon by putting that show together. <laughs> you know, and it also was a uh, a factor that. It was a very inexpensive show, and the studio was basically exhausted financially with the with the whole process of putting the show together every week. Well, it's amazing that in hindsight, and you were gone, all, practically everyone else on the writing side was gone the next year. But looking for a clean slate or a clean – it didn't exactly turn and pivot <laughs> as cleanly as it might have. But eventually, by the end of the year, it, they were off and running with a whole new uh, – I'm sure. Under uh, Michael Piller and and uh, everything that happened since happened. Well, well I never, of, yeah. I, I, I never met Piller, but I I presume my my presumption would be that he kind of 
helped lubricate relationships mm-hmm. when Rick Berman was creating such problems. I know they had a rough year, both people coming and going and also just him coming in late. They had a, they had a head writer named Mike Wagner for about three weeks, and then Michael came in after him after they'd already started shooting. So it was still crazy for a while, but they – yeah, they were uh, – Michael said they were riding the rims. But, you know, uh, I, I, actually, I actually discuss some of this stuff, very personal stuff, about this show uh, on my podcast. I would ask you. Yes. Tell us about that. Real quick. Well, Where Hollywood Hides is an iTunes podcast my wife and I have had for a couple of years. And we really discuss the classic years of television. And we do a lot of celebrity interviews and interviews with people in the industry. And we did we did touch upon Star Trek and my experience there. So anybody who wants to know more can certainly go to Where Hollywood Hides and and hear kind of a an intimate perspective. I'll put it that way. And I, prob- I probably mentioned Rick Berman there too. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's one, and I, I wanted to do this the first time, and we'll close on this. You were a PA on the original series, the third and final season after Paramount bought them, right? That's right. So do you have one sentence to tell us about Fred Freiberger? Oh, my God. There's a name. <laughs> uh, just a great sense of humor. Just a great, wow. great sense of humor. Yeah. Because he's, he's the scapegoat for killing Star Trek and other shows coming in at the last of a, of a series uh, run. So, Well, they couldn't. <laughs> but you knew the human guy. That's the reputation in history. Just, oh, know. well, that's. Well, okay, whatever. Well, it, no, probably, it probably needed killing then. <laughs> but did it. That's why I ask you. We have reputation, but you were there. You knew the guy you know, as a real person. That's why. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he, I think he shares my irreverence. I'll put it that way. <laughs> mm, okay. Well, on that note, on that very irreverent note, Bob, thank you so much for dropping by and shedding your angle on the, the murky chaotic year of the bridge on star trek second the next generation second season thanks so much and the name of your podcast again was where hollywood hides all right thanks so much thank you larry the trek files is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry additional production by ken ray all of our documents yes even our distribution list half page buck (laughs) <laughs> They're all available at our site on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Trek Files. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcasts.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at larrynimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. podcast.roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.